Hello everyone and welcome back to yet another episode of the Desi VC podcast where I interview angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. This today is a bonus episode and I'm really excited about sharing this with you all. Today's episode is special because we have our very first non-Indian VC on the podcast. Someone who has spent a lot of time in Asia as an investor. He is also very well versed with the Indian startup ecosystem through his job and most recently as a newly published author focusing on entrepreneurs in India among other emerging markets. I have with me Alex Lazarao, investment director at Cathay Innovation, a global firm that invests across Africa, Asia, Europe and North America. He has spent his career working at the intersection of investing, innovation and economic development in private, public and social sectors at Omidyar, McKinsey and Company and the Royal Bank of Canada. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode and listen what Alex has to offer us from all of his varied experiences. Hi Alex, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. This is the first time we are having a non-Indian VC on the podcast, but what's really interesting is that you've traveled extensively to India and parts of Southeast Asia for, you know, even for the book and otherwise on on the job as well. And what's really interesting is that you're 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 an author of 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 the book titled Out Innovate: How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. Now we'll get to the book uh in a bit but first of all tell me how is everything on your end how are you dealing with the lockdown you know you've had the book release you've had a baby you have your day job as a vc how are you managing everything well first i'm honored to be the first non-indian guest on the show um things are okay you know my wife and i have been sheltering in place and fortunately are are healthy and happy we uh we've actually been sheltering in place in some ways before it was fashionable because uh uh we had a baby in uh early february and uh i transitioned from working from home and uh paternity leave into directly this shelter in place uh as well so you know we're doing okay obviously um not the time i had expected to launch both a baby and a book uh in the middle of a pandemic but uh but all, all things considered a lot of the themes in the book that i explore around what it's like to build businesses in tougher ecosystems and not just survive but thrive are all the more applicable here and now and today through the pandemic and so um it's actually been a lot of fun seeing the reception being very warm to some of the themes i explore that's awesome and congratulations on both it's definitely an exciting time to be you <laughs> i want to dive a little more into your background so could you take us through your career till now and share with us um what you do at cathay innovation happily i've always been interested interested in this intersection between innovation impact and for me the lens of investing i in another world i might have actually been an academic i thought i was going to do phd in developmental economics um i ended up deciding i'd get some work experience and tried investment banking i'm i'm from a small town in canada and worked in the big city uh, of toronto as my first job realized i loved the tool of finance i wasn't in love with selling big canadian insurance companies and so i ended up doing my mba instead and came out of that with this thesis of wanting to invest this was at the beginning of the impact investing movement and um and and uh as i exited 
um, the program, I realized that I had no discernible skills. And so I wanted to get some experience around working with CEOs and strategy. And the second thing I realized was that many of the industries I cared a lot about, financial services, healthcare, uh, future work type things were highly regulated. I want to understand how that side of the world worked. And so I decided, one, I'd go work for uh, the Bank of Canada doing financial regulation for a bit. And then later I ended up at McKinsey for a number of years uh, doing strategy consulting and a range of emerging markets, including uh, a little bit, um, uh, a little bit in, in, in Asia um, as part of it, but a lot across a range of emerging markets. And then about eight years ago, seven and a half years ago, I joined Omidyar Network, which is the family office venture fund, impact fund of Pierre and Pam Omidyar, where um, I had been kind of the employee number two on a new fintech fund that we were launching to support emerging market entrepreneurs and uh, stayed there for about five and a half years. The organization uh, grew a lot and it was a, a wonderful experience. And, and obviously one of the big investment zones for Omidyar Network obviously is, is India. So I had a little bit of a, uh, a front row seat getting to work alongside my colleagues who are on the ground uh, supporting a number of entrepreneurs and, and actually spending uh, through a bunch of trips over there as well. So I had the opportunity to, uh, to learn a little bit through that professionally. And then about two years ago, I got to know the firm Cathay Innovation. One of the investments I made when I was in Omidyar was a startup called Chime Bank, which is a digital bank for the underbanked here in the States. Uh, Cathay had led the Series B. And as a French Canadian doing global tech investing, it was really fun to meet a French fund doing global tech investing. And they had offered me to, to come join. And so that's how I ended up there. Uh, Cathay Innovation is a globally focused fund, Series B and C, five to $20 million checks. A third of it invested in Asia, out of Singapore, Shanghai, Beijing. A third um, out of Paris, covering Europe, Paris is headquarters. And a third, this notional rest of the world, mostly North America, out of San Francisco. We're affiliated with a private equity fund called Cathay Capital. And we also have a Pan-Africa venture fund in partnership with Africa Invest. And really the idea is supporting entrepreneurs wherever they are, even if they're outside Silicon Valley. And so, uh, so that's my, my day job. And then outside of work, I've been teaching entrepreneurship at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, which is Middlebury College's graduate program in Monterey, where um, I help students essentially over the course of a year, conceive of a business model, develop the business model, and ultimately at the end of the year, pitch it to some VCs and, and hopefully launch it. Uh, and so that's, that's what I've been doing on the side as well. Now, that's a wonderful career. Clearly, you've worn many, many hats, a consultant, a VC, professor, mentor, and now an author. To me, all of that is extremely interesting. But what really stands out is that last bit, you know, what made you want to write this book? And how did that whole idea come about? In some ways, it was the combination of my work investing in startups around the world, but with one foot in the valley. And on the other hand was teaching entrepreneurs about their vision and what they were going to work on and, 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 uh, and helping them think about their business models. And in both cases, I was getting really frustrated because I wanted, you know, from my students case, for instance, I wanted to assign them books and materials on how to innovate and things to, to read. And everything I shared with them was invariably incredibly Silicon Valley centric. And at every juncture, I always felt like I had to contextualize what I was sharing with the reality building startups in more emerging ecosystems and emerging markets in places with less capital, often with less resources, or often where there are more macroeconomic challenges. And I believe, you know, I grew up in, in Winnipeg in the middle of Canada, and I believe that you know, the best entrepreneurs operate in places like Chicago or Winnipeg or Bangalore or Nairobi 
or Amsterdam have more in common with the best entrepreneurs in Sao Paulo than they do with those in San Francisco. And yet no one is telling their stories. And so I decided I would, I would, and I interviewed about 200 founders from around the world. I feature about 55, 60 in the book, uh, many of whom actually from, from India. And um, I think that taken together, the best practice coming out of many emerging market ecosystems is not only challenging some of the hard felt and hard held conventional wisdoms of the Valley, incre increasingly they're reinventing startup best practice as a whole. And I think there's a lot we should learn from them and they can learn from each other. But as we're grappling with COVID and the current crisis, and we're looking for role models on how to build sustainable and resilient businesses, those role models are not coming from an ecosystem of abundance that's been extraordinarily good in, in times when times are good. But when times are tough, I think the best entrepreneurs have been dealing with the most adversity around the world are the ones we can learn from the most right now. And so in, in many ways, what I had set out to do is tell a story and start a conversation about what it's like to build a business in more emerging ecosystem, but it's actually turned into a much broader conversation about what it's like to build a business in any ecosystem and weather the hardest storms. Could you define what emerging markets are to our listeners? Most of them are people who are trying to understand a lot more about the venture and startup ecosystem. So most of them are, you know, think about them as people who are, for, who are getting introduced to all these concepts for the first time. So could you define that a little bit further? Well, and I'm, I'm going to further complicate it perhaps rather than simplify it. In the book, I actually think of it as frontier ecosystems. And so the way I define that is I say, there are markets like Silicon Valley. There's obviously Silicon Valley, which is a very developed country, very developed startup ecosystem. You know, perhaps you might say Tel Aviv is that bucket. Perhaps you might say uh, New York or something like that in there. But Around the world, there are ecosystems that have less ecosystem intensity. So they are more nascent startup ecosystems and some of them operate in more emerging markets. And so if I was gonna grossly simplify things, I'd say, look, you could draw it in a two by two matrix or a, a, a little graph. And on the top right, you might say very developed country and very developed startup ecosystem. You might plot something like Silicon Valley. And in my book, I purposely take us to places that are at the extremes in some cases. So I even bring us to places like Pyongyang in North Korea, which obviously very developing country and a very developing startup ecosystem, but also markets like Lusaka. But I also bring us to places to pull out the nuance. So in emerging markets like India, but with very developed startup ecosystems, like you might say in Bangalore, um, as well as in developed countries, but with very emerging startup ecosystems, and you might put Winnipeg, where I'm from, as part of that. And in many ways, you know, obviously this frontier is very heterogeneous itself, right? Every one of these ecosystems are different. I think one, I think that the frontier still has more in common with each other than they do with the valley. It's a different context. Um, and two, I purposely use some of the extremes to bring out the big differences, but I also pull out the more new nuanced differences by looking at ecosystems that are a little bit closer apart, uh, closer together. Uh, in terms of where they are. And so I purposely do it that way, but it's really to, to, to try to push the conversation around what is not Silicon Valley and, and what it takes to succeed there. So one of the things that people associate with emerging markets is that they're underserved, be it capital or infrastructure. Do you see similarities between startups and emerging markets in the East with those here in, in North America, say the Midwest, for instance? Yeah, absolutely. I do. And one of the things I 
explore in the book is this notion of what type of company you want to build. So how you're going to build your business and you know, Silicon Valley with this notion of chasing unicorns and a unicorn is both a numerical value of billion dollar business. It's also a philosophy. It's how you want to build your business. And if that's the philosophy, the method is growth. It's growth at all costs. It's okay to subsidize user acquisition and service of growth. It's okay to burn an extraordinary amount of money ahead of uh, revenue in service of growth. And it's okay to take a short-term horizon. Essentially, every startup has a valley of death. And in the Silicon Valley unicorn chasing model, what we do is we lower the bottom curve, the cash curve, in service of jacking up the revenue. And I think in many emerging markets and emerging ecosystems, um, they operate in ecosystems with less capital and where you actually have to think about building sustainability and resilience much earlier in the business model and think about unit economics and a sustainable unit economic model that works right away and a cost structure that is more manageable. You know, obviously it's normal that most startups will, um, burn some amount of money in service of getting into revenue. You have to, it takes time to build revenue. The question is how much and philosophically how much are you willing to do? And, and I think that that commonality exists in both. And the third is taking this long-term view, particularly in more emerging markets where exits are harder or where there are less natural acquirers or it just takes longer to get access to, to the capital you need. And I think that commonality exists everywhere, taking this philosophy of building more enduring and long-term successful businesses. And that's, I think, one of the critical areas where I think that in this COVID-19 crisis, we have a really big opportunity to learn from entrepreneurs that are operating in some of the tougher ecosystems around the world and how they've succeeded. No, I agree. This means tolerating greater uncertainties or less efficiency when it comes to competing uh, with companies that have greater resources. Now, I had a chance to read the book and um, it's a fresh new perspective on Silicon Valley and how companies are built, which often gets talked about all over the globe. One of the subtexts, as you touched upon in your previous segment also is the concept of sustainability. And that's most relevant today than ever before. What have you learned from your conversations and studies with Indian founders? How are they thinking about the concept of growth at all costs or as you know, as Reid Hoffman puts it in his uh, in his interviews and books, blitzscaling. Blitzscaling, yeah. You know, I, and, and by the way, I actually think blitzscaling is one of these topics that's misunderstood where, you know, I, I think Reed Hoffman and Chris Yeh wrote their book and I think their strategy is really applicable to certain types of businesses, right? Where it's a winner-takes-all market, where there's a ton of capital and where scaling up really, really quickly and having a monopoly is critical and necessary to win. I think the challenge is that we as a community have misunderstood this growth at all costs. Because I think most businesses do not end up in you have to win and be, have the whole market. And as a consequence, you, you don't necessarily have to subsidize growth. I think for most businesses, you can just scale up, build a really good business and have a more balanced growth approach, but mitigate it with um, not burning as much money as you need to grow as quickly as possible. In some ways, I think the view that I hear, and this is both within India, but kind of more broadly uh, around the world is, is a little bit more of a sage approach on this, where obviously the end goal is building a scaled, successful business. And obviously the end goal is benefiting from things like network economics, et cetera. 
But the question is, is how you get there. And I think one of the things that we see in the Valley with this growth at all cost mentality is we see the success stories and we say, well, what did they do to get there? What we don't know is if you replay the Uber story or whatever, a hundred times, how many times do you end up having the same result? We only know the one successful outcome, but we don't know all the other stories where they might not have. And what I believe is that in particularly in emerging market contexts, if you are building with this balanced growth approach, more times, probabilistically, you will end up with that successful outcome that, that we're all looking for. So I think, that's, I think that's something that I'm seeing. What's interesting, by the way, is the way you might apply the strategy de depends on the market. And one of the differences, I think, between what you might do in a more um, emerging market relative to kind of building a camel in the Midwest or something like that, to your previous question, is you sometimes have to build a little bit more of a portfolio. Um, and there's a lot of research around uh, emerging market business strategy where entrepreneurs are building a product portfolio in part because they're filling a trust gap in the market, in part because there's a lot of opportunity and they're creating that market segment. And in part because to onboard people, they need to provide a range of other products and services to do it successfully. But by doing this portfolio approach on products, they're also building resiliency. If one of the areas breaks, they've got others to fall back on. Um, but they're, they're giving themselves more optionality too on, on certain things. And so that's kind of a unique manifestation I see more in emerging markets and certainly uh, among Indian founders as well around having more than one, having more than one product line. No, I mean, most of the misconceptions about blitzscaling is also due to pop culture. You see that in today's movies and TV shows and the way that they depict venture capital and uh, fast growth companies, right? Now, I've been meaning to ask this question to an investor for a very, very long time. And it could, it's just my thesis, uh, but I'd love your opinion on it. When it comes to blitzscaling, are companies that are more focused on domestic markets, quote unquote, pardoned? with the approach of growth at all costs because it's a smaller market and early dominance means bigger payouts for everybody involved than those that are more focused on global play from day one. I guess you could say more that's, that's true when it comes to consumer businesses than enterprise businesses or do I have that whole concept wrong? I'm going to answer the question in a slightly different way, which is at what point should you try to grow and, and gain a global monopoly? And at what point should you not? And I think that will then indirectly answer your question. And let me explain why. Because in the book, I studied what it takes to be born global and when a company should try to scale and be multi-market and beat others out in, their, uh, in, their, in the global sphere, not just in the domestic sphere. And I think this is an area where I think there's some misunderstanding. And I think there's three areas where I think it's important to be really thoughtful. One is the nature of the unit of the network effects. A lot of businesses have network effects that create a moat, but whether or not those network effects are global or local matter a lot. And they matter a lot to your question. So if you are Google, there is more value of data from the Philippines or data from Russia gets on to the platform versus uh, to a reader or user in North America. And similarly for Facebook with friends, if you are Uber, it actually doesn't matter that much if there are more riders in the Philippines or Indonesia or whatever to a, a driver in the valley or a rider in the valley. So the network effects there are much more local. And so as a result, I think it's one of the reasons where platforms in the ride sharing space have seen way more competition locally and uh, thus have had a lot more challenges to have one global winner and there's so much more burn. And so I think that's one, one reason where you might choose 
to not blitz scale or grow at all costs globally is when your network effects are more local. The second I think has to do with resource intensity. With businesses that have really high resource intensity, think of something like SpaceX at the extreme of building rockets or Amazon Web Services where you're doing cloud computing and things like that, which causes really, really strong economies of scale. In those situations, it's natural that you're gonna have more concentration of global winners because of what it takes to build that. Whereas if resource intensity is lower, again, think of the Uber example or ride sharing. In this case, you know, obviously there's a lot of marketing OPEX of getting riders and drivers onto the platform, but the actual CapEx of building the platform and, and launching it is actually not that bad. And so in that case, that causes a challenge. And the third one is what it takes to scale regulatorily um, or if there's any special conditions. FinTech, for instance, has uh, a number of regulations that make it tough to just go regionally or globally across markets. Um, we also think of um, things like the Great Firewall in China, which obviously have, have caused the rise of a lot of domestic players as well. And so as a result, I think to answer your question, which I think is really interesting, is if you're thinking about blitzscaling and whether or not to grow globally versus locally, I, I actually think it's just a broader question of, as you think about being born global and scaling, what are the things that make it such that there's gonna be a global winner versus a local winner? And I think those are the three dimensions I outlined, right? Network effects, resource intensity, and of course, local conditions. Now let's take that a step further and break it down. When we are talking about building global companies, what are challenges that you have seen are based on some of the conversations that you have had with VCs and entrepreneurs within the industry? Well, you know, when, when you think about markets like Southeast Asia or China or India, for that matter, where, you're, where you tend to associate the next billion users coming from, what are the biggest challenges that you're seeing global companies face when they are either relocating or launching businesses in that side of the world? Yeah. And by the way, this is an area where I think constraints breed advantages, right? India obviously has a really big domestic market. And I think that's one of the reasons we've seen a lot of very big, successful domestic unicorns uh, or very large tech companies get built in India. And I think it's one of the reasons where in Singapore to build a really successful tech company, by nature, you end up being regional or born global or targeting many markets from the get-go because you have to, the domestic market is much smaller. If you look at the 10 unicorns in Southeast Asia, seven were um, regional and did so very, very early on. And of the three that were not, they really focused on Indonesia, which alone is a 200 million plus uh, person market. And so I think that bit is important. And so I think maybe the first thing before talking about what's necessary, I think it's important to think about the fact that often it is, um, is absolutely just necessary to be born global, to be able to scale a successful company. Um, in terms of what it takes to succeed, I actually, the, the recipe depends by company, but I think three things need to happen at the same time. And one is, as a company, you need to think very consciously about the product you're building and how it ports across borders and, uh, and works. Second, you need to talk a lot about your organization and how you make that work to be successful, have the right incentives, have the right partners in different geos, et cetera. And third, I think as an organization, you think about your culture and how you actually build it so that you both have strength in uh, centralization, but also ability to adapt 
to local market conditions. So I think all three of those need to be present. But when it works, I think you can actually build world-changing companies that out-innovate, uh, to use the title of the book. And I'll give you one example, which is the story of UiPath. So UiPath is a startup that came out of Romania. And the CEO, Daniel Dines, talked a lot about when I interviewed him with the fact that he was based in a small market in Romania, forced him to be from the get-go global, forced him to make a product that was adaptable to different cultures and regions, to make an organization that could work uh, and scale across geographies and, uh, and a culture that could, could fix all this out. And so as a result, today, um, UiPath, which is a robotic process automation company, um, essentially they make bots to automate repetitive white collar work tasks, is the fastest growing, arguably, enterprise company in the Western world of all times. And are growing faster and scaling beyond what many of its more Silicon Valley uh, looking competitors are. And I think the result of it is because they were able to build this muscle early on to scale. And so I think that's what's required uh, to do it. But if done well, the payoff can be huge. Now, what have you seen out there? You speak about culture, growth, surround yourself with the right people. How does a first time entrepreneur or someone who's you know, done business in the domestic market think about all of this and most importantly, get it right? Yeah. And by the way, I think this is, this is a question I'm, I'm really passionate about um, in part because and through my teaching. And I think we have this preconception of the founder in the Valley is this 22 year old hooded warrior. That's a dropout and is doing it. Certainly there are some really good examples that we could point to that have done that. But if you look at the data, the most successful entrepreneurs around the world, including in the Valley, are folks that are older, that have studied, that have worked at a number of companies, and they're solving a pain point that they are intimately acute, acutely aware of. And among the global founder community, often it is folks that have worked and lived abroad or have gotten a global network. And certainly, I think what, what we're seeing in the Indian market is that the first wave of entrepreneurs are folks that are repats or folks that had uh, gotten a lot of global opportunities. Now we're seeing a whole new generation of entrepreneurs rising and scaling and succeeding in the Indian market. Um, and, uh, and, and, and obviously uh, with less of this repat drive, but still kind of being able to tap a local uh, network and culture and things like that. And so some of the advice that I would give founders in terms of how to think about this, if you're a first time founder is one is really take the time. You don't, you don't need to rush into being a founder. That's my unconventional advice. I would say really under, take the time to develop a network, to really understand an industry and to really figure out the pain point you want to solve. And I think that will arm you to then be unstoppable, to be the person that needs to win the industry because you're the best prepared for it. And from this cross pollinator lens or from having the global lens, I would invest in building a network across industries and geos if, if, uh, uh, if that motivates you and, um, uh, and, and really broaden those horizons because it will then position you well to scale your business later on. Okay, so you've, you've taken time, you've thought about your strategy, you've built this great network, you have um, a great product, but we hear this most often as well. Many founders are limited by their powers, by their investors or people who they bring on board, um, who, who, who put in the capital mm -hmm. for their initial, uh, initial rounds. And you've talked about sustainability and business models in your book. Do you, what do you think 
really brings about that fundamental change in the way that VC is currently structured, both here in the Valley and across the globe. And yeah. even though, you know, we, we hear a lot about this and we read a lot about this topic, it is seldom practiced. What, what are the bottlenecks in ensuring that VCs don't get in the way of building sustainable businesses as opposed to, you know, just growth for, you know, growth until you make it sort of a model? Yeah. And, you know, you and I are both VCs professionally. So I, I think we're probably both a little bit biased that the tool is, is a really powerful one. I certainly am. Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is that if you think of VC's history, um, the venture capital model wasn't invented in the Valley. In fact, it was adapted from a much older industry, the whaling industry in the US. 70% of the whaling business was American and 70% of that was from one town, New Bedford. And the reason was they figured out this financial innovation around having merchants invest in captains uh, that sponsored a boat, that got workers to work on it essentially for free, but got paid out a share of the business. And that model was translated to the modern VC model. And that model has worked extraordinarily well for one conception of how to build startups. But I believe that as the VC and startup ecosystem scale around the world, there's today 480 startup ecosystems, over 1.3 million venture-backed startups. In that context, we're also going to see some evolution of the venture model to reflect the fact that um, there isn't just a one size fits all. I think the model that exists today is extraordinary for certain type of companies. It doesn't work for everything. And so we're seeing three things. One is some evolution of the product. One thing that I think is interesting is instead of inspiring yourself from the whaling industry, what's another high risk industry that's been successful? The mining industry uh, with the royalty based payments and adapting that to startups. And so we're seeing some experimentation around revenue shares, for instance. I think the second is. Uh, thinking through how do you make decisions to make it more programmatic and easier and uh, over longer distances. And so we're seeing startup funds, uh, new funds building born global and across borders, just like the entrepreneurs are themselves. And in my fund, you know, Cathay Innovation, where I work, is a good example of that. Um, we're also seeing the rise of computerized decision making, which makes it easier to assess startups at distance. And the third is the rise of unconventional players. So we're seeing more and more corporate investors coming in. Um, we're seeing more and more impact investors as well, like Omidyar, where I was before. And I think these kind of things are going to mix the portfolio of options available entrepreneurs have. And I think through competition of different models, we're also going to drive more flexibility for founders and um, a better service offering for them ultimately. Now, one of the things you touched upon there was a lot of different players coming into the, into the market and making this whole ecosystem a little more robust and giving opportunities to different stakeholders. Now, emerging markets are still tackling the everyday problems and focusing on setting up infrastructure, be it logistics, supply chain, technology, yeah. or even shifting patterns in consumer behaviors. Is real innovation and breakthrough taking place outside of the valley? Or are there just copycat models with operational uh, tweaks or culturally relevant and contextual tweaks that are being built across the globe. What's your opinion on that? And what sectors or subsectors uh, really stood out to you uh, when you were doing your research and studying entrepreneurs from across the globe? I think that it might have been true 15 years ago that innovation came from one place or a certain set of places and then was copied elsewhere. I think that is no longer true. And increasingly, I think we're seeing ideas come through what I call the innovation supply chain. Ideas are coming from everywhere and are getting improved everywhere. Let me give you an example, right? Ride sharing, which, you know, that's an example of something that came in Silicon Valley, started there. Um, but today, 
that model is expanded everywhere. And arguably the largest, not even arguably, the largest uh, ride-sharing company in the world is in China and dwarfs the size of, of Uber and Lyft. Um, the model exists all over the world and it has been adapted and improved. So think of what happened in Southeast Asia. Gojek adapted it to the uh, Ojek model, literal motorcycle taxis. But Nadim, the CEO there, took a different view on how to build a ride-sharing company. He said, look, I want to employ my drivers. I want the drivers to make income all day and not just from uh, ride-sharing, but kind of build an ecosystem and offer that ecosystem to consumers. And so his vision was in the morning, we'll drive people to work. At lunch, we'll deliver food. In the evening, we'll do the, drive them home. And then after work, we'll deliver them food. And throughout the day, it'll be commerce packages. It'll be offering financial inclusion. It'll be a range of other services. And it's no wonder to me that uh, that model has now been adapted elsewhere. And Uber now has the Uber credit card and Uber has Uber Eats. That ride-sharing model has been improved over time. And so that's something we're seeing. And in that's the Indian context, whole, I think it's... Um, super app sort of a business model that totally. a lot of companies are trying to copy out here in the West, right? Totally. And by the way, uh, India has become a powerhouse, I believe, at spurring some really powerful innovation to solve local challenges. And I think of the model of Udon, for instance, which is now being replicated in different places. Or, you know, Oyo, obviously... Uh, with the hotel model being replicated in different ecosystems too. Um, and so we're seeing some emerging market innovation getting built in emerging markets for emerging markets and getting replicated elsewhere too. And I think that those models will also inspire developed markets like Silicon Valley down the line because um, they're really building innovative solutions. You've had an extensive career that's, that's spanned across the globe, Alex, but what misconceptions did you personally have before you started writing this book? That's such an interesting question. Um, I think that when I wrote the book, I, I had started with a hunch around the big differences happening around the world, but I was wondering if this would be a coherent playbook, the one set of things that you see, or just kind of a, a patchwork of differences. And one of the things that really stood out to me as I worked through it was that the challenges emerging market and emerging ecosystem founders were facing were the same. You know, obviously the way they manifested themselves varied, how acute they varied depending on local ecosystems, but by and large, those challenges were, were the same. So one of the things that surprised me is that how many of the themes I write about together kind of have this coherent story and narrative of this alternate playbook that has resonated with founders in different ecosystems. This is obviously not a recipe book, do A, B, C, and then you'll get Z. It's much more of a menu where take what resonates and leave what doesn't and learn from entrepreneurs around the world. And yet it had surprised me how much many entrepreneurs face the similar challenges in uh, so many different ecosystems and, uh, and how they're universally drawing inspiration from each other and learning from each other. And, and that was the small bit of the conversation that I really want to push forward um, as part of this project. How have you changed as an investor prior to the book and after? Um, I would definitely not recommend writing a book in service of investing. Um, but I, I will say that for me, it was a really valuable and rewarding experience in a couple ways. I think one is the act of writing for me, which I enjoy, not everyone enjoys, but the act of writing, which I enjoy, forces me to reflect on and really put a stake in the ground of what I believe. And as a result, 
I think it helps bring clarity of thought on the things that I believe and the things that I don't have an opinion on and things I do not believe. And that then drives how I search for companies, how I make decisions on the companies I invest in, et cetera. Um, one of the chapters I enjoyed writing the most was this notion of how the best entrepreneurs are creators that have impact woven into their business model. This has always been a hunch for me, but writing it down and thinking through what are the kind of businesses that have a lot of impact and why, and how do they weave it into their operations and the fabric of their business was a big driver in guiding me on where I'm going to spend my time and how I want to spend my time and what kind of entrepreneurs I want to back. And so I think it was less a shift in my thinking or an evolution and more a crystallization or forcing me to actually write down and commit to things that I already believed. That's very interesting. I like that uh, approach. Um, the fact that you're able to then set aside yourself as both an investor and author and you know, various different hats that you wear and are able to objectively look at uh, individual sectors and um, you know, just focus on that from that perspective. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And I think teaching for the same way has been a good opportunity to meet a whole different set of folks that are thinking about the world in a different way. And you know, in many ways, writing the slides and, and, and figuring out what I'm gonna teach in class forces me to think, but actually it's so iterative that you also get to learn from the folks you work with. And so actually the writing, the writing the book with 200 interviews also forced me to iterate my thinking. And where I had the broad idea as an outline, I really got to crystallize it through, through conversations with folks. And, and I found that incredibly rewarding. And, and obviously the opportunity to meet some incredible and inspiring founders was, uh, was also a lot of fun. Awesome. And on that note, I want to enter my, uh, my, my last segment, which is uh, a rapid fire. I'm going to shoot some questions at you and uh, put you on the spot. And okay. uh, we'll try and uh, get a little more perspective about you as an investor, as well as now as, as an author as well, uh, sharing some of your insights that you've learned from the uh, other side of the world. Are you ready, Alex? I'm ready. Awesome. Um, if there's one thing that companies in the West can learn from those in the East, what do you think that would be? Well, not to be trite, but to out-innovate. But if I was more specific, I would say <laughs> thinking about how to weave sustainability and resilience into the business model, not grow at all costs. All right. And what are some of the wrong reasons why investors or parachute VCs fall in love with companies on the other side of the world? I think that it's really important to understand the problems in a very specific way. And I think that without, if, if you like an idea, just because you saw the model play out in Silicon Valley, you say, I'll just invest in the next thing in India. I think you're at risk of not understanding the local challenge. I think you need to understand both what the global and the big opportunity is, but two, what makes a particular market tick. I'll give you one example, which is the case of matrimony, um, Bharat matrimony in India. When I interviewed the founder, he talked a lot about how in Silicon Valley, people thought he was crazy for a lot of the things that he was implementing. Like for instance, he had uh, locations for people to actually meet because that was so important. He had a tool for family members to also be part of the matching process, uh, not just the two individuals. Um, he even had an opportunity to do some form of background checks to validate uh, who the people were because family members wanted that. All these features that would never have existed in uh, in the 
uh, in the Silicon Valley context. And so it's important not to miss the details of what makes a business actually successful on the ground. You touched upon Bharat Matrimony there, but is there an Indian startup apart from that that you admire? Oh, there are so many uh, startups in India that I admire. Um, one that I really like is Revigo, which has really figured out a model to weave social impact into the fabric of their business. They do logistics, but they really focus on their tagline is making logistics human, but really focusing on how do you get the driver um, home as many nights of the week, so really improve their lifestyle and, uh, and also have a load in both directions as many times as possible. So to really increase both the efficiency of their system, but the profitability for the driver. And those are core aspects to how they built their operations, but also how they define their success. And that I think is correlated with, with the ultimate success of the business, lower churn, uh, more efficiency, et cetera. And so um, the way that he is, um, uh, the businesses essentially married impact and operational success is something I, I admire a lot in that business. I'm in fact having one of the investors uh, from Rubigo on the uh, on the podcast very soon, so I'll do a little more digging into. And, Perfect. Uh, yeah, that'll be an interesting company for us to uh, speak about. Well, you know, what's what's one piece of advice you have for companies and founders who are navigating through this whole COVID nineteen crisis? Um, you know, from where you sit uh, every day as a VC, what are you looking at? Or what are you talking to your portfolio companies? What kind of advice are you are you giving them? And um, can there be something from that that can also be relayed on to other founders elsewhere? So first, my heart goes out to all the founders out there. This is an incredibly challenging time. And, um, and I cannot imagine what it's like to have to manage this and figure out what to do with your team and et cetera. Um, I think that, you know, as a VC, I'm a perennial optimist. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the crisis is that it's also laying bare some of the biggest challenges we have as a society and what can be solved and what i'm hopeful for and the advice i would give is what are the what are the cracks that are the big challenges that are also big big market opportunities that we can solve and and also have massive impact at the same time and and i think that's that's the advice i, I give my students and prospective founders and folks who are thinking about what to do is you know this time of crisis obviously it's really hard but what are the big opportunities you have as well that's great advice. And I want to ask you a little more about your day job. You know, what, what's one thing that you wish you had known about venture capital before you, um, you know, started your career in it? I think that every early recruit in a VC firm comes from jobs. You know, if, if you work at a startup before, or in my case, you know, worked in investment banking and consulting, they were very fast paced jobs with very fast paced feedback cycles. And one of the things I love about venture is it's definitely very, very fast paced and you get to learn from and with so many incredibly inspiring people. But the feedback cycle is very, very slow. You don't actually know if you're right or wrong for a decade. And you might even have been right, but have chosen the wrong company or something totally out of your control and the company's control um, happened for whatever reason, like COVID. And so um, the feedback cycle is long. It, you as a VC are having a limited impact on the business. Uh, you know, perhaps as a board member, you're having a little bit more impact, but at the end of the day, the entrepreneurs are the ones doing the really hard work. And so the feedback cycle is non-direct and very long. Awesome. Um, I have to ask you this, and I was very curious from the day you told me about the book. Why did you put Delhi in your title? Uh, alliteration. 
first, but also um, uh, interviewed a number of companies in India, some of which made the book, but, uh, but also um, just because I'd spent a lot of time there in a city that I really love. Awesome. And lastly, Alex, um, you know, who should buy your book? Where can they find it? And what should they be expecting when they turn over the first page? <laughs> well, um, I think there are three broad audiences of the book. First is folks that are in the technology and innovation community. Um, and so that's startup founders, people that work at startups, VCs, et cetera, um, around the world. So not just in Sil not just in emerging markets, but also in Silicon Valley. Um, and I think there's a really big opportunity within the Indian community. I think two is people that are working at larger companies or uh, within the government or foundations or whatever, and are thinking about how to innovate, but are doing it from a different seat and want to have a different set of inspirations. And third is, I think there's a broad social enterprise movement and kind of small business movement as well, just folks that are not uh, necessarily pure and square in the tech in the innovation industry, but are thinking very much on how to build innovative businesses and evolve the way they work. And I think there are lessons learned on that. And where to find the book, you can buy the book anywhere where books are sold. Obviously, it's on Amazon. We're in the middle of COVID, so I'd recommend supporting your local small business bookstore as well. And for those interested, you can also sign up to my newsletter on alexlazaro.com, A-L-E-X-L-A-Z-A-R-O-W.com. Awesome. That's a great note to end the, end the episode on, Alex. It's a pleasure speaking with you and learning more about your insights, both as a VC, an author, and different hats that you've worn across uh, various times in your career. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. And that wraps up our episode for this week. It was great to have you with us, Alex. Thank you so much for your wonderful insights, both from your time as a VC in Asia and as an author who has extensively traveled and interviewed entrepreneurs in emerging markets, including India. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already subscribed to us, what are you waiting for? Why don't you go ahead and do it already? We bring great guests from the world of venture capital on the show and have them share their insights from experience. And while you're at it, do also rate and review the podcast so that others may discover the show as well. This is your host Akash Pat signing off for this week, but I'll be back again next week with another great guest. Till then, stay safe everybody and continue to keep hustling.